Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about that period in Russia, uh, the USSR, during the 1970s, which is most frequently referred to as a period of stagnation. Um, It is a period when uh, the uh, problems that had developed um, that could be traced all the way back to Stalinism destruction of the uh, Soviet system of agriculture that never really recovers from collectivization. Um, this um, system approaches a point of, of epic crisis and it no longer has the brutal tools that Stalin had gifted it uh, in order to manage economic crisis as Stalin did during the 1930s. If you look at what the uh, um, the Soviet famines were really they are Stalin's response to um, seemingly impossible um, economic pressures. Um, the Soviet Union can't um, really operate like this any longer post 1956. It's quite capable in 56 and 68 of exporting violence uh, overseas uh, to Hungary and to Czechoslovakia. But in both these instances, Soviet repression, uh, whilst brutal and bloody uh, in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, is nothing compared to the the heights of of Stalinism. Um, After Khrushchev's secret speech, there was a a tacit uh, abandonment of the the extremes of Stalinism. And the the long-term legacy of that, really, is that the, um, the Soviet system doesn't collapse, it doesn't particularly function either. Um, it is a, um, a one-party state with a largely um, unproductive and uh, unresponsive uh, economy that has um, very few um, and no market mechanisms uh, within it. And therefore... Um, has a um, a real problem when the, the the increasing demands for improving living standards amongst the population 
are heard. Now, if you read Sheila Fitzpatrick's Every, Everyday Stalinism, you'll see that um, the Stalinist um, general population, Stalin's people, were not uh, an acquiescent and pliant and silent people at all. They were discontented a lot of the time and found all sorts of ways of expressing this discontent. And so um, it follows that throughout the rest of the 20th century, um, as with populations in the Western world, Soviet populations continue to want largely similar things, uh, it, uh, food and consumer goods in the shops. And the, uh, it became in increasingly aware throughout the 1970s that um, the various different attempts to resolve the Soviet Union's economic problems um, were, um, had been unsuccessful. So we have this period of stagnation under Leonid Brezhnev. Now, let's have a little bit of background information on Brezhnev before we go any further, because... You know, he is um, a figure as pivotal and important in the story of the Soviet Union as Lenin or Stalin, and yet gets a lot less press. Brezhnev had been uh, one of Khrushchev's protégés during the Second World War. Brezhnev had been a political commissar, um, and he had come under the uh, the command of uh, Brezhnev, of Khrushchev, um, who was a, a far senior figure, but in a, a largely similar role. He joined the Supreme Soviet in 1950, and in 1952 he was made the party's first secretary in Moldavia. Um, he appears to have had the eye of Stalin and the favour of Stalin, uh, but when Stalin dies in 1953, um, Brezhnev benefits from the reorganisation of the party. So here is a man who has used his connections um, very well, very skillfully, and this is a typical, really, of promotion within the party within the Soviet Union. It's all about connections, about blat, about being, it's about who you know. During the Great Terror, of course, this was the downfall of many people. Um, the fact that they did know they were in webs and connections and um, vast um, kind of interrelated groups of people. Um, it was very easy to be denounced. You know, the first thing that um, the, um, the, the the Soviet NKVD wanted to know was not what have you done, but who do you know, who you connected to. So, in many ways, the the, the post-war generation had benefited from this great cull um, during the late 1930s. By about 1963, it was clear that there were moves against uh, Khrushchev uh, underway. Uh, Brezhnev appeared to be loyal to him, but in reality was uh, one of the conspirators uh, in uh, plotting to remove remove him. It wasn't so much to do with the failure of the um, or the or the near catastrophe of the Cuban Missile Crisis though there were many in the Soviet government that were scratching their heads wondering why on earth Khrushchev was bothering with um, this small Caribbean island. It was really the fact that um, the, the planned uh, economic um, modernizations of the 1950s and early 1960s hadn't really happened. The Virgin Lands campaign to try to irrigate vast stretches 
of um, Siberia and to um, farm them uh, in a, uh, a way in which kind of the Great Plains of Canada and America had been farmed, that had failed. And the um, Soviets were starting to look rather foolish, um, particularly as the Chinese were now industrialising and hoping to overtake the West. The Soviets had set themselves a target of, within a generation, economically outperforming um, the USA. And this was um, certainly not going to happen. In fact, if anything, a, a reverse situation uh, was occurring. Um, and the, so the uh, removal of uh, Khrushchev from power and the replacement of Khrushchev with Brezhnev in 1964 began the second longest reign of any Soviet leader. Um, Brezhnev um, rules to, for 18 years to his death in 1982. What also ended with um, Khrushchev's demise was a period of relative liberalism um, I use the word relative very advisedly there. Um, relative relaxation, shall we say, of censorship and a relative degree of um, of liberalism within um, kind of cultural policy. It's a period of time in which Solzhenitsyn's uh, Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich um, is published in the magazine Novi Mir. Um, it is uh, this all comes to an end. Um, very abruptly in about 1965 and new, um, new laws uh, particularly against writers are vigorously enforced and the implication was this was that um, here was a leader who had denounced Stalin and um, had tried to set the country on a new course um, he had caused all sorts of upheavals and trouble and that was not going to be repeated. Now, it's not to suggest that Brezhnev was anywhere near as extreme as Stalin or as likely to be as violent and repressive as Stalin, um, but uh, or likely to um, involve the reopening of the gulags or, the, or to carry out purges or anything like that. That's, that's not the case. Um, but certainly um, Brezhnev was now about not experimenting politically, socially, culturally or economically. So the question begs itself, um, a, a revolutionary regime based on Marx's ideas of kind of political economy that then um, abandons um, previous ideas of political economy and doesn't replace them with anything new. Instead, it tries to do a sort of watered-down defanged version of the past um, how is that going to survive and the answer is well ultimately within a generation it doesn't it was probably Khrushchev who was the, the last Soviet leader who uh, believed that the communist society would emerge Brezhnev didn't uh, Brezhnev was under no illusions that um, uh, communism, the, the, the period of struggle of building socialism so that communism could then emerge um, was a, a fantasy as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Um, but in the de first decade of his leadership, um, the economy does continue to grow, but it is not, doesn't really match the explosive growth that the Western uh, world sees throughout 
the 1960s. In, from 1973 onwards, um, the growth comes to a halt. Why? Because of the, the oil crisis um, around the world. Um, the Soviet Union is a, an oil-exporting economy. And the, this era of stagnation affects nearly, well, uh, nearly every uh, major power in the world. But the, the Soviet Union um, has... Uh, part of the narrative of the Soviet Union is, really, is that it's really insulated from the world economy because it's a, a socialist state without kind of needing to worry about the free market. But this isn't true. Um, the, the Soviet state, the, the Soviet Union, uh, exported and imported, and throughout the 1970s, it was importing foodstuffs from the USA, grain and animal feed. And it's unlikely that you, you are ever going to have a, um, a nation coming out on tops in the Cold War when it becomes economically dependent on its main rival for food. Um, so stagnation um, had an effect on the peasants and industrial workers in the USSR. Um, but Brezhnev was the, um, the first leader not to attempt to make any kind of meaningful uh, economic change or readjustment or reform um, to the country's economic problems. The uh, Lenin, Stalin and Khrushchev had all attempted to cut the Gordian knot and had, you know, to limited degrees of success. Um, Brezhnev was, uh, was not going to uh, attempt because there were essentially no new ideas for him to play with. So the Politburo um, didn't want to repeat um, any of Khrushchev's ideas. This, this was you know, more trouble than it was worth. And there had been too much unrest under, uh, within the Eastern Bloc and in the Soviet Union um, as a result of Khrushchev. And so the trade-off that uh, Brezhnev has is to swap economic success for stability. Um, when countries have economic transformations, they become fundamentally um, uh, unstable, this, and, and the, uh, pr this instability needs to be managed normally, as was seen within Europe in the 19th century, by an expansion of um, democracy, of elections, um, and the development of civil society, which is something that definitely the Soviet Union did not want. So, Brezhnev said that a uh, that socialism existed anyway in the um, the USSR, and now it was needed to be maintained. Um, and he said, "Well, we've got to a point of mature socialism that doesn't need to be revolutionary any longer. Uh, it just needs to kind of muddle along in, in, in a way." Um, so there were enormous burdens on the um, uh, the, uh, the USSR. The 70s is a period of economic crisis for much of the world, as mentioned. Um, but the USSR has a number of difficulties. It has a massive defence sector. So the thing, the thing about armies is that they cost a lot of money and they don't make any. Um, you know, the way that Hitler saw the world was that armies would eventually... Pay, pay for themselves through conquest. And this is not something that the Soviets really think or not something that they are really trying to do. Um, so the, um, part, the, part of the story of the Cold War in the 1980s is that the American economy was so productive and so 
awash with money from you know the wonders of free market capitalism that it could uh, outspend the USSR. Well, it certainly outspends the USSR, but this is not nothing to do with the kind of ability of the American economy to generate wealth. It is to do with the uh, ability of the American economy to generate debt, to borrow and to, in essence, print money. Um, and to devalue the dollar in order to do it, which ironically had all sorts of um, disastrous consequences for the third world, but that's a kind of another another story for another time. So the, the failure um, of the Virgin Lands campaign um, meant that the Soviet Union um, was unable to be self-sufficient and to feed itself. Um, most of the countries in the world are not self-sufficient, and yet, but these are countries that are sort of plumbed into the the, the, the world economic system of free markets and that, that kind of thing. Um, so, a a socialist nation on its own um, that is sees itself as being under siege needs to be able to feed itself. The problems of central planning were obvious. Um, the command economy meant that. Uh, consumer goods um, were not produced, or if they were, they were what, the kinds of goods that weren't wanted, not very well made, um, that they um, filled warehouses with stockpiles of stuff that nobody needed. Um, there was widespread corruption. The Soviet bureaucracy throughout the, um, well, really since the revolution, had been uh, nepotistic and corrupt and um, skimming off the top and um, factories that uh, underperformed or didn't do any work at all, but there were ways of insulating them from inspection and oversight and bureaucracy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And the Soviet Union's allies... Um, and satellite states in the Warsaw Pact were also the beneficiaries of Soviet largesse. They received very cheap oil and gas sold at, uh, at uh, below market prices in order to keep the Warsaw Pact together to prevent the, uh, the, the Poles, for example, from looking elsewhere. And by the mid-1960s, the Poles were actually borrowing from Western banks. Um, there's obviously no um, 
little or no entrepreneurship. Not that that is, in many ways, um, uh, one of the more significant problems. I mean, the, the Soviet economy was still growing throughout the 1970s. It just goes to show that um, states can grow economies, but they probably grow a lot faster when you allow private enterprise to do it, um, to, to take over. Um, and again, there are, there are many exceptions to, to that, that rule as, as well. depends what private enterprise you have. And anyway. The development of a new post-war generation of Soviet citizens was also a real problem. These are Soviet citizens who have no memory of Stalinism. They have no memory of the purges, of the famines, they have no memory of the camps, and they have no memory of the war. And they were keen to have the similar kinds of living standards to Westerners. It does not mean that they were, the country was full of um, proto-capitalists, far from it, but they were uh, people who, wanted, who believed that this is what socialism should be providing, uh, consumer goods the things that, with which one enjoys life. So there was a great deal of growing militancy from workers throughout this period. There, there were, um, uh, this is to do with um, shortages in stores. This is to do with uh, the fact that there are not enough consumer goods um, and wages paid with paper money don't mean anything. If there's nothing to buy, um, it, you know, you, it's, you just get a handful of paper at the end of the month. Um, in many ways, um, the Soviet Union had kind of shot itself in the foot by its um, policy of full employment. There's no um, threat to the workers of dismissal or an increasingly diminishing threat of dismissal. So the 1970s sees a huge increase in absenteeism, a reluctance from work, a resentment of work. Low levels of productivity become a permanent feature of Soviet life. Anything that resembled stakhanovism of the Stalinist era has long since gone. Um, the idea that um, one should sacrifice to build, Stalin, build socialism, which was quite prevalent in the 1930s, doesn't exist. So the, the view that Brezhnev had that uh, communism was unobtainable. It was probably he probably wasn't alone in thinking that. After 1962, the the USSR begins to become a net importer of food, and one of the biggest exporters to um, the USSR was America. So this is one of the great ironies: the two pounds are locked in bitter um, Cold War rivalry, but the need to import food, um, obviously. Food um, exporters in America were not going to overlook um, lucrative deals, and the the need to import food meant that the Cold War could perhaps never be won by the Soviet Union, as it made it um, a, a in, in weak and dependent upon its its bitter enemy. Animal fodder was one of the most important areas that um, was. Um, of imports. This was made from uh, imported grain. And a third of Russia's bread was made from imports. So the even if the Virgin Lands policy had worked, it still wouldn't have been enough to boost, uh, to, to make uh, Russia self-sufficient. Um, and it was 
essentially, this is a legacy of Stalinism. The destruction of Soviet agriculture under Stalin had been so extensive, and it's not to say that that agriculture was particularly efficient anyway, but it was so extensive that there was virtually nothing that could be done to um, repair the damage, not uh, under the, the Soviet system anyway. And it also meant that now, with food imports, um, the USSR was not insulated from the rest of the world economy. They were dependent on the vagaries of price rises and falls, just like anybody else. And that meant that inflation, which had become to kind of eat away at the world economy and cause chaos in Europe and America, this causes problems for the USSR as well. So poor food um, uh, supply and an inability to control prices were some of the kind of the key features of the Soviet Union in, in the 70s. Um, <coughs> Britain and other nations were, um, their wealth was based on the supply of cheap food. This is how they've become rich powers. And the USSR, the fact that they can't achieve this by the 60s was a key component of, of economic stagnation. Arms spending contributes to Russia's economic problems in the 1970s quite significantly. Um, the most expensive commodity in the 60s and 70s was oil, and Russia had large reserves of it and was a natural exporter. This generated large sums of foreign currency, but this never went to the civilian economy, or not much of it did. It went to um, <coughs> improvements um, in the Soviet military and arms industry. 15% of the country's GDP was consumed by military spending. If you think that the NATO spend at the moment per country, the minimum spend has to be 2%. And the Great Britain at the moment um, <coughs> has reduced that significantly. 15% uh, is, a, a, is a, a large proportion of any country's GDP. And this meant that civilian consume, the civilian consumer economy was neglected and the, uh, this unproductive chunk of the economy um, is um, really a very, very, a, you know, a very, very big drain on resources. Uh, rich countries can afford big armies. This is a, a given. And uh, even then, they try not to because it's you know, money for, good money after bad a lot of the time. The, uh, with an economy that's stagnating, high levels of defence spending became a luxury that the Soviet Union could ill afford especially since the country was also forced to import food. So in 1965, um, <clears throat> following Brezhnev's rise to power, um, the role of chairman of the Council of Ministers became vacant and Alexei Kasigin was uh, given the job. Kasigin was a man who potentially could have uh, saved the Soviet economy from um, a lot of its ills. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, well worth uh, examining and exploring if you're doing this period if, of the Soviet Union. Um, Kosygin was now in joint command of the Soviet economy along with Brezhnev, and he, he's, he actually produces far more ideas about what to do. So he produces significant um, ideas for change. He said the existing structure of state planning was, isn't going to work. Um, the workforce won't be motivated to produce goods efficiently um, with a uh, state-planned control system. Economists who were around Kosygin said that introducing a profit motive would help um, to motivate workers. And so he was really um, proposing 
the largest introduction of free market values since Lenin's new economic policy. But it goes further than the NEP because, at least with the NEP, Lenin said that you know the commanding heights of the economy, the the big stuff, the uh, railways and the coal and the steel and things like that, that will remain in state hands. The uh, and there will be no profit motive introduced into that. Kosygin didn't pr- pr- propose privatising uh, Soviet industry. He said, you know, the state will control it, but we'll introduce market values into it as well. Competition and things like that. The um, Nothing had made a profit since the five-year plans or had been intended to. All goods were priced simply to reflect the labour that had gone into making them, unlike in a capitalist economy where some items can be sold at far higher prices. Um, the Soviet economy was ba- was based on um, ideology as opposed to um, market realities. The Soviet economy said that you know if it took a man a certain amount of time to do a, a particular task to create a particular product, then that product should be priced to reflect it, and it's not really priced to reflect what it is a um, <coughs> customer will pay. And this was decided, well, this will avoid exploitation. So you won't have somebody making expensive things very cheaply and then being sold very cheaply because of the the needs of the customer. The Soviet economy rewarded managers for producing too much. So it meant that stockpiles of unwanted goods built up outside warehouses or went to waste. And Kosygin's reforms enabled factory managers to set their own targets. They said, well, you know, this decentralises things. These factory managers will know what what they're doing. Um, and in all sorts of industries, from coal to textiles, um, budgets were introduced for new equipment. Managers could be rewarded for increasing profits and workers would be paid incentives from a special fund. The reforms meant that the state's commitment to eliminating unemployment went away. So um, the beginnings of a market economy in the Soviet Union, meant also that unemployment must be embraced as well as, a, as a, a concept. And so you could fire unproductive or poor workers. And this was a, a huge culture shock to Soviet workers. They didn't realise that you had to actually had to do something or it was essential that you, you, you perform well at work because it was a kind of a, had been something that had not been a feature since 1917, really. Not to suggest that all Soviet workers were unproductive, they were certainly not. It's not the case, but there was a, a large proportion that were insulated from any kind of, of kind of market forces. There were um, the possibility for businesses now to access state banks and to access loans, which they could repay with interest. And the state was now making profits from lending money to enterprises, to state enterprises. So we have here all the features of capitalism, but run by the state. So it is what one would call a state capitalist enterprise. This is, you know, Trotsky would have been wagging his finger saying, I told you so. Trotsky argued, not that I say Trotsky is necessarily right in this analysis, but he said Stalinism would inevitably lead back to state capitalism and from thence to capitalism. Um, But he would say that. Um, So there were limitations to these reforms. The industry had to have production targets vetted by officials. There was still heavy bureaucracy there. And the output of the economy gradually does improve in the second half of the 60s. But central planning bureaucrats and politicians found this all very um, uneasy. They didn't like it. It made them nervous. 
and they spent a lot of time undermining Kasiyagin. When the reforms don't produce the Shangri-La that is, is hoped for, um, there is a convenient backlash against them, and conservatives within the Communist Party uh, begin to um, undermine them, um, and they find that they are um, not quite able to do this. Kosygin still has the ear of, um, of, of Brezhnev, and they find that they can't quite undermine these reforms. There was resistance. The resistance, though, makes sure that the reforms never quite go as far as they needed to, and therefore Kosygin could turn around and so say, "Well, this is why they were ultimately of limited success." The the next round of Kosygin reforms in the nineteen seventies. There were um, three rounds of Kosygin reforms: 70, uh, 65, 73 and seventy nine. Um, in seventy three, the the next round of Kosygin reforms are prompted by the world economic crisis. Um, and the Soviet economy stalls, and Kosygin tries to break, use this as an opportunity to break the power of central planners. He thought that creating regional associations that increased the power of local planners uh, would be a good idea, and these associations would encourage state enterprises to share technologies, so they would be like partner, partnerships, um, factories helping factories, and expertise could be shared and innovation could be shared as well. This approach was totally alien to the Soviet system, and they uh, and it was once again resisted. Associations um, grand, slowly grew in a very piecemeal fashion. They were unpopular, not only with the ministries but with factory managers who didn't want to be doing these kinds of things. They didn't want to be losing power and authority to um, uh, the associations and they didn't want to be um, really negotiating or um, collaborating with their, their fellows. They were, um, these are so, many of these industries were dotted so far across the country um, that it became almost impossible to really connect them up. In seventy nine, the third wave of Kosygin reforms were uh, introduced and... Um, by this point, half the economy was organised into associations, and some start to gradually work, such as the Gorky automobile plant in Leningrad. But a new tier of bureaucracy actually has to be introduced in order to kind of gel them together. And the, the, the so these reforms um, began to re-centralise power, unfortunately. Um, there's almost seems to be almost no way in the Soviet economy to get away from bureaucracy, uh, other than biting the bullet and transitioning to a uh, to a market economy. Um, and when Kosygin died in 1980, these reforms were were finally uh, abandoned. Um, Brezhnev dying two years later, and though the the abandonment of these reforms meant that um, the uh, reactionary conservative ideas. Within Brezhnev's government, that triumphed over bringing the kind of the limited market ideas to the fore, um, and so these ideas, these changes, would not be attempted again until Perestroika, which once again sent this huge shock through the Soviet system. Okay, well, I've gone on a bit longer than I'd intended to today, so I'll, I'll leave it there. But just to let you know, we are excitingly close to our 100,000th subscriber. Now, when we do, those good folks at IB Taurus, whose books I've reviewed in the past, they're going to give us a prize. Yes, exciting times. A 
copy of the uh, new um, Lord Kitchener biography, Hero and Antihero, uh, will be available. So stay tuned and I will let you know how you can compete for this marvellous gift. Anyway, have a lovely Easter, whatever you're doing, and I will catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.